Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Football is back. We've got Bills and Rams, Bucks and Cowboys, Chiefs and Cardinals, all of the NFL action coming up for week one. Use our promo code BLEAV50, that's B-L-E-A-V-5-0, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is Monday, September 5th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. We have got our first college football Monday of the 2022 season coming at you. Eventually, college football Mondays will have their own music, They do not have them today because I didn't have time to find new music and edit it into the show. So eventually we'll get new music for College Football Mondays to kick off the programming so that you can know, other than just reading the description to the episode, that this is a College Football Monday. Welcome in, everybody. Hope you're enjoying your week and uh, enjoying your Labor Day Monday. If you go back to our podcast feed, you will see that on Sunday we returned Wired Up. Wired Up was originally our version of a college football Monday where we talked about what happened in the college football world on Sunday because after NFL happened, everything kind of gets fast-tracked. And this year I decided to, uh, since we did Memes of the Weekend last year on Mondays, this we this year we are going to do College Football Monday and NFL Mondays as two separate podcasts. Perhaps Wired Up will serve a purpose for cases like yesterday where I had a full-scale conversation about Notre Dame and Ohio State and the, the Notre Dame program and something that we talked about back in December with Morgan from Australia and with myself as a full-scale podcast about Marcus Freeman and trying to keep the program together. So you can check out that episode. It's a full post game of one of the six or seven college football games a year that are must-watch, shall we say, which is, as I described, a Tier 2 program versus a Tier 1 program. You can check that out on Sunday as well if you want the breakdown of the biggest game from the week in college football, which was uh, Notre Dame and Ohio State. College Football Mondays will sometimes be about serious college football talk. Sometimes it'll be silly. We'll play games. We'll laugh at some teams. It'll have some memes of the weekend elements. We can laugh at Iowa, which is what we're going to do today later on in the show because Iowa just had this most amazing moment that happened this weekend where they scored seven points in a game where they did not score a touchdown. It's the first time a team has scored seven points and one since these things have been tracked. 
going back to 1981, thanks to Ryan Nanny of the Shutdown Fullcast for pointing that out. Iowa had the most Iowa game ever, and we'll talk about that coming up later on in the show. First off, what I want to talk about is the, the college football news that came in before the college football season started, which is college football playoff is going to be 12 teams. And in, in a laughing part of this conversation, I found it hilarious that they kind of just like squeezed that in literally 12 hours before the start of the season. And they squeezed it in right before everyone went home for Labor Day weekend. After five years of sports talk radio debates and college football shows on ESPN with Reese Davis talking about expansion, they just kind of like shoehorned in the decision to go to 12 teams in the college football playoff before they went on their three-day weekend, which I thought was just absolutely hilarious. That after five years of podcasts and five years of sports talk debates and five years of television debates, they just kind of said, hey, by the way, 12-team playoff, congratulations, and we're going to do that maybe in 2026, maybe earlier, who knows. Oklahoma and Texas were supposed to join the SEC two years from now. They might be in the SEC next year because the Big 12 wants to negotiate a TV contract. Everyone's just making shit up as they go. And uh, now Oklahoma and Texas have a new conference, and USC and UCLA have a new conference, even though UCLA went viral this weekend for having like 8,000 people in the 80,000-seat Rose Bowl, which I've been to the Rose Bowl when it's packed all the way full to the top. I have not been to a Rose Bowl in which there are only 8,000 people, and the people in the stands rival that of like a Miami Marlins baseball game. But the stadium just looked absolutely empty as UCLA pivots their way into the Big Ten. Absolutely empty stadiums in Southern California. And everyone's making shit up as they go. Big 12 was going to expand, and now they're they're 12 teams, and now they're talking about going to 16, and now they're negotiating a TV deal early as uh, the, the SEC picked apart the important remnants of their conference, and now the rest of the Big 12 teams will merge with the AAC, and it's all just kind of a clusterfuck right now as everyone makes shit up as they go. So the college football playoff expands to 12 teams for the next round of television negotiations, which I think are going to start sometime after this season ends. I believe the college football playoff format runs currently, it was a 12-year contract when it started, This is year 9 or 10 of the college football playoff being the way that it is. Obviously, they can just renegotiate the contract if it's with ESPN. Um, But the college football playoff started in 2014. So that's 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. This is the ninth year of the college football playoff in its current format. That means the deal runs through 2025, which is why they said at the latest they would adopt a 12-team playoff beginning in 2026, because that's when they negotiate a new TV contract. They might do it earlier if they negotiate with ESPN. It's all a matter of whether they're going to rip up the current contract and expand for more money, or they are going to see out the rest of this contract through 2025 with the current college football playoff structure in place. And... All of this is around television contracts. The money in college football is about to explode. If you go back to August, we did a podcast on the oral history of the Big Ten's current TV deal and how it came to be and why there was expansion and what it rivaled with the SEC television contract, which also came close to a billion dollars per year 
from ESPN for the exclusive TV rights of the SEC. Uh, it's a billion dollars a year for the Big Ten television contract, eight years, seven to eight billion dollars, depending on um, the, the different opt-ins and things of those sorts. So you have a full, it was August 10th, by the way, if you want to go back and listen to our oral history of the Big Ten television contract. And you have massive financial expansion in college football. The conferences are negotiating new TV deals, and the college football playoff is expanding to 12 teams. And something that's getting overlooked this weekend is the fact that college football and its governing body, which is basically just made up at this point, like the NCAA basically has no power anymore over college football, which is a good thing. And someday someone's going to write the book about how the NCAA had 50 years to prepare for college athletes becoming like a normal labor, like a typical labor force, getting paid compensation from the schools, being able to profit off their name, image, and likeness. And the NCAA fumbled the bag in a whole bunch of short-sighted decisions that ultimately render them with no power over college football because they the, the college football conferences negotiated their own playoff in 2014. Remember, the Power Five is the one who has the television contract with the college football playoff. And they took the power away from the NCAA legally they were forced to make name image and likeness laws legal because they these rights were being restricted from college athletes for years ncaa fought it tooth and nail the supreme court told them to go pound sand because they were being idiotic and ultimately they had they passed name image and likeness standards one day before name, image, and likeness was going to be legal in many states, which, by the way, the legal law over supersedes NCAA law. Therefore, the NCAA waited until literally the last day possible to change their name, image, and likeness laws. They squeezed every last dollar they could, and they were totally unprepared for changing the name, image, and likeness laws around the, the, the NCAA bylaws. The laws changed themselves. The NCAA bylaws were ones that changed rather slowly. And so as the NCAA has their power taken away, as the conferences become the governing body of college football, the NCAA still has power over college basketball because they run and operate the tournament. Within college football, which is uh, about 80 to 90% of your revenue generation in college athletics in total, college football at its highest levels funds the entire athletic program's of these schools. It, it, there's calculations that have been done on this. 80 to 90% within Power 5 schools revenue is generated from college football. And it's a, it's again, there are broader outliers. Obviously, some basketball schools generate slightly higher revenues. There there are outliers. The average the median and the mean are between 80 and 90% of your revenue generation within college programs come from college football. As college football is governed by the conferences and they can just vote and expand the college football playoff and negotiate their own television contracts, the fact that there were no labor negotiations between the players and the college football governing body when we're talking about billions of dollars in sports revenues is absolutely unjust and not getting the coverage that it deserves college football players absolutely should have had a seat at the table 
when it came to negotiating the new expanded college football playoff and negotiating the terms of these contracts within these conferences. The NFL Players Association has a seat at the table and revenue sharing that they agree to with the player with the NFL or the NBA or the MLB or the NHL. It doesn't have to be a union and it doesn't have to be a players association. These things are difficult because college football has like a three-year turnover of its labor force. And so it's difficult to have a union representation without having its own governing body. Ultimately, though, it is important for college athletes to have some sort of bargaining power when it comes to deciding unilaterally to expand the college football playoff or deciding unilaterally to negotiate a $7 billion TV contract. There should be either them involved in direct negotiations or some sort of agreement between labor and management like a union contract. It doesn't have to be a union contract specifically. Something that looks like a collectively bargained contract that then enables revenue sharing between college football and between its players and so that we don't have to go create an economy out of used car dealerships and Milo's T television deals in order to make a revenue stream for college athletes that exists outside of the institutions themselves. And back when name, image, and likeness laws changed nationally, not the NCAA, we're talking about legal laws in, I think it was like seven states, beginning on July 1st, 2021. I did a podcast where I talked about how this is a monumental victory for labor rights within college football, which again, according to studies done by Drexel University between 2014 and 2016, college, I've been citing this for years, college athletes at the time were making 15 cents on the dollar as college football athletes based on what they were worth to their institutions and to their universities. And this specifically cites college football players, men's college basketball players, and women's college basketball players. They're making marginally about 15 cents on the dollar relative to what they were worth to the university. They were getting paid roughly over four years, $150,000 in scholarships and in food and in housing and in uh, say, I guess anything else that might be a necessity, you know, like travel and, um, you know, merchandise, clothes, stuff of those sorts. They were getting paid $150,000 over four years and a top level and an average level college athlete at a D1 program is worth roughly a million dollars to that school over their four years of, of playing at the school they should be make many players should be making six-figure contracts relative to what the schools are earning in revenue and that's only going to increase as the revenues of these major conferences and these universities continue to increase and a couple weeks ago when we talked about matt areza and the sexual assault case at san diego state uh, i guess i say sexual assault the gang rape at san diego state and san diego state not following the the top thing that they claim is most important to them, which is the health and safety of their students. One of the points that I talked about in that is that colleges and universities, especially public colleges and public universities, they essentially operate as their own governments. You pay tuition to them and taxes and fees, which tuition in and of itself feels a lot like paying taxes, and and the school itself takes that money and then provides education, food, 
housing, medical care. This is essentially a functioning government at the highest levels of colleges. And in many college towns, the schools itself operates as a broader power than the government when it comes to the di- directly impacting the lives of the people who go to that school. And so these schools and universities have so much power. And at the same time, they are, many of them are private, are, are public institutions. Some are private, but it's always a combination of public and private funding between these schools. Even schools that claim to be public schools uh, obtain a lot of private funding. And so these schools themselves are essentially operating as billion-dollar corporations while also accepting public money and also operating as a functional government because they are providing, like I said, they are collecting money and then providing food, education, housing, medical care, transportation. There's a lot of public transportation in colleges. They're providing all of the necessities that someone might need in order to live like a functioning government in college towns. In some cases, better than governments themselves. I went to UC Davis. UC Davis's medical care, it's a little bit pricey. Altogether, it is a more functional medical care system than the United States government is currently operating. So many of these places, they offer better services on local levels because they have infinite resources similar to a government, not the same level as a government, but enough infinite resources to supply necessities for 80,000 students and faculty and people who live within the community. It's it's like a government operating on a smaller scale. And so because of this, there is so much money and colleges and universities themselves take tuition money in taxes and fees and fund their sports programs. Major college football programs are able to be self-sustaining. Ultimately, they collect money from the school itself. They collect money from the private sector, whether it be big-time donors or whatever it might be. The school provides money to the program, and then the program itself also generates revenue. So athletic departments operate within the corporation as its own multi-multi-million-dollar businesses. And they employ hundreds of people, and they are tasked with providing the health and well-being of their employees while they can suppress wages for college athletes. And so when a governing body like the NCAA and and Greg Sankey and Kevin Warren, who if you don't know who they are, Greg Sankey is the commissioner of the SEC, most powerful man in college sports. Uh, You know, if you want to look for someone who's like a Roger Goodell type figure, you could point to Greg Sankey as the closest thing to that within college football. Or, and within college sports at large, and then Kevin Warren, who's the new commissioner of the Big Ten, you can point to those two people having the unilateral ability to expand the college football playoffs while also talking about how it is inevitable that players are going to be paid. In fact, Kevin Warren said it last week at his like b- beginning of the season press conference for the Big Ten. He's like, yeah, players are going to get paid. And this is going to happen very quickly. And this is a tone shift from the company line of the NCAA. Now that college football, now that the college conferences are in charge and the schools itself act as their own governing body and they appoint commissioners to govern the conferences themselves, but will ultimately govern the entire sport in a couple of years, as they appoint commissioners and this becomes professional, you're going to not see the same resistance to labor negotiations and college athletes getting paid because that's what the business model suggests will generate the most revenue. It's weird that paying your labor effectively is now all of a sudden a good move for increasing your revenue 
because once you can collectively bargain, you can go to the table, negotiate a television contract, and then there will be a larger uh, television figure because all of a sudden the sport now has collective bargaining and athletes are getting paid to play your sport. And for the short term, college football is not in a place where they have to pay their athletes. Therefore, management can continue to suppress the wages of the labor and at the same time negotiate a 15-year new college football playoff contract in which they will not have to share the money with the players themselves. And that should not exist. And this brings me back to what I was talking about in July. I know we, we had a weird tangent there for a little bit. But what I was talking about in July of 2021, after that massive success of college athletes obtaining their rights back, do not let the NCAA off the hook was the title of the episode. And it was the conclusion that I had is that while this is a success, there is so much more that needs to be achieved when it comes to the rights of college athletes. And it will never be perfect because labor is always going to be exploited within the confines of the capitalistic system that was created hundreds of years ago and has since brought into exploit labor as globalization makes labor more expendable and so labor is going to continue to be exploited within the capitalistic system as the the as global economies now become interconnected and there's billions of people who can offer labor at cheaper prices and and the demand and uh, the demand for labor is staying relatively stagnant but supply is increasing there there's all sorts of economic variables that I'm economically trained in and you know we can dive into on another podcast but ultimately what this is is that labor is always going to continue to be exploited, especially labor that doesn't have rights in the first place within the construct of such a gigantic institution. And so college football athletes and college football's labor should be having a seat at the negotiating table when the decision is made to unilaterally expand the college football playoff that did not happen and while there's talk from Kevin Warren and talk from Greg Sankey about college football ultimately reaching a place where labor is going to get paid, that day has not come, and that day is probably not going to come by the time they negotiate a new television contract in about five months with ESPN or with Fox for the new college football playoff format. And that is something that if we apply public pressure to him, we're not going to be able to apply enough pressure because we are years away from reaching a point where college athletes have the power and have the rights to negotiate with the college with uh, or, or to set up not necessarily a labor union, but to set up a labor a, la- a labor association similar to like a homeowners association or something of those sorts to set up some sort of group that operates like a union even if it doesn't have the same protections as a union because there's specific ways for labor that has high turnover rates we're reaching a point where college athletes are going to get paid and college athletes are going to be paid something close to what their market value is because again according to drexel university studies 15 to 16 cents on the dollar and if you add in whatever name image and likeness is now it creates a new economy that doesn't actually change that number a bit. College athletes are getting paid a little bit more because now they have more rights, and therefore the the big boosters to the schools are setting up LLCs and funneling money to the players um, through their LLCs, through name, image, and like name, image, and likeness deals, which 
helps players get money in their pockets in a way that didn't exist before. It's just not a salaried it's not a salaried employee based on the revenues of the athletic departments themselves and that is the goal that should be achieved especially before a new television contract is going to be negotiated i am very pessimistic that they are going to reach that by the time they negotiate this new college football tv deal especially granted that they've just expanded the playoff and at the same time it is going to be a long winding process that hopefully gets resolved within the next decade although it will move as fast as people are willing to fight to create the change and the best I can do at this point because I am not uh, working in labor unions and I'm not boots on the ground trying to impact college athletics the best I can do is to use this uh, platform to talk about this issue coming off the first week of college football that the college football commissioner and the college football governing body tried to kind of sneak in before the Labor Day break and before the first week of the season, that they were going to expand the college football playoff unilaterally without having to negotiate terms and salary structures with their employees, which is something that every employee should be able to have. They should have a say in the revenues of their program, especially when in, in athletics, they are the ones who are making most of the money possible for the athletic departments and these gigantic universities that essentially operate as governments. So don't let the NCAA off the hook and don't let college football commissioners off the hook just because they say players are going to get paid sometime in the future. One of the things I do love about doing a podcast is that you can seamlessly transition without pause from talking about serious labor issues and athletes being exploited by schools and, and labor and management issues, which is a broader societal conversation that happens to apply very well to college sports. We can transition right from that into talking about of Iowa football and playing a stupid song about corn that's a, a parody of Luke Bryan's famous song rain is a good thing I just love that we can just without pause go right into just playing the corn song with no no setup no transition no preparation for the audience we can just seamlessly transition right into corn just like that because I want to talk about Iowa football and other than Notre Dame and Ohio State, there is no college football game that I watched on the entire first weekend of college football more than the South Dakota State and Iowa football game. Because the whole way through the game, I was watching this and thinking, this is the most Iowa football game ever. It was three to nothing late in the third quarter, late in the second quarter. It was three to three late in the third quarter and then Iowa gets a safety right at the end of the game 
I'm sorry, right at the end of the third quarter, they get a safety to make it 5-3. to three. And so you're watching deep into the fourth quarter, and it is a 5-3 to three football game. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, this is amazing. Because years and years ago, there was a football game that I still talk about as the most lore NFL game of the last few years, when the New York Giants, led by Colt McCoy and Alfred Morris, went into Seattle a Seattle team that started the season 8-1 and one and got Pete Carroll a five-year contract extension. Seattle went... New York Giants led by Colt McCoy and Alfred Morris, who, by the way, Alfred Morris was signed off the street just a few weeks earlier. The 2014 Washington racial slurs were picked up by the Giants, went into Seattle and beat Seattle by like a score of 12 to 10 and the game was at one point 5 to 3 in the third quarter and I took a picture of that and said remember this because it might be a long time before you get to see a 5 to 3 football game again and it took just under two years for in the fourth quarter of an Iowa and South Dakota State football game South Dakota State by the way who played in the FCS championship game last year South Dakota State and Iowa were 5-3 to three late into the fourth quarter. It took until early in the fourth quarter for either team to consistently stay above 100 yards of offense. Iowa went above 100 yards of offense early in the, or late in the third quarter with about, I believe it was, 2 minutes and 15 seconds left. They then fumbled the football, which led to them going back under 100, and then early in the fourth quarter, they went above 100 yards of offense and stayed above 100 yards of offense for the entire game. Did South Dakota State ever get over 100 yards of offense? Yes, they did. It took until the second-to-last drive of the entire football game for South Dakota State to get over 100 yards of offense. It was 5-3. to three. Iowa had a field goal and a safety, and then... They pin South Dakota State at the two-yard line. This was a game, by the way, in which Iowa punted the ball to South Dakota State from South Dakota State's 37, South Dakota State's 41, and South Dakota State's 48-yard line. That is three separate punts in which they punted the ball across the field from South, from, on South Dakota State's side of the field. Iowa punted the ball eight times and won the game <laughs> and two two punts for Iowa could have been downed inside the 20 but they were touchbacks instead they had four punts that pinned South Dakota State inside the 10 yard line and could have had as many as six Iowa was up five to three with four minutes to play they pinned South Dakota State at the two yard line and they got another safety Iowa scored seven points with two safeties and a field goal something that as I mentioned off the top of the podcast has not happened in college football since 1980 a team winning a game with seven points and not scoring a single touchdown in the entire game it was the most magical Iowa football game ever because if you know anything about Iowa football Iowa football has been doing this shit for 20 plus years close to 25 now Kirk Ferentz has been the coach at Iowa since 1998 he is the longest tenured coach anywhere in college football Kirk Ferentz has been the Iowa head coach for three decades and in 2004 which was his sixth year at the job Iowa won a game against Penn State 
six to four. They won six to four. It was a game, by the way, that was six to two at the end of the game, and Iowa took an intentional safety in order to win the game six to four. They won a game six to four while taking an intentional safety to run out the clock because Penn State was never going to get 35 yards to move into field goal range within a minute, and they were correct. Iowa is a team that goes eight and four every year, and every six years they play in a Rose Bowl because for some weird reason they get a really talented running back or a couple really talented tight ends or Nate Stanley at quarterback. Because think about that. Kirk Ferentz has had the job at Iowa for 24 years, and the only quarterbacks of note that have ever gone to the NFL from Iowa are Nate Stanley and C.J. Beathard. That is it. That is the only notable quarterbacks to ever play at Iowa under the tutelage of Kirk Ferentz. And he's been able to keep the job for 20 years through a scandal in 2020, by the way, that would have gotten most college football coaches fired. Kirk Ferentz would have gotten fired for stories coming out about Chris Doyle racially berating players and saying that he'll send them back to where they came from and him getting fired and then hired by Urban Meyer and then Urban Meyer having to back off of that because like, oh, that was a really bad idea to hire the racist strength coach. And Kirk Ferentz has had accusations of being rude to black players in the past and Kirk Ferentz is a white guy who has spent 25 years in Iowa while being the highest paid public employee in the state. Of course, Kirk Ferentz, he's an old white guy. It's hard for old white guys to relate to 15, 16, and 17-year-old black players when they're recruiting them. Of course, Kirk Ferentz was never going to be relatable in that respect. And yet, Kirk Ferentz has managed to keep his job, put together teams that allow 14 points a game, and only score 17 and usually win eight games a season and like I said every six years they'll get a a George Kittle and a Noah Fant together and they will go to a, a, a Rose Bowl against Stanford in 2015 or they'll go to a Rose Bowl in 2009 or they'll go last year they were ranked number two in the country early in the season before they lost the Purdue game which the Purdue game's coming this year I'm not sure when but the Purdue game is coming for someone but They lost the Purdue game at home while ranked number two in the country, and they ended up playing in the Citrus Bowl, which is probably where they're going to play again this year because I, and we talked about this with Blake Jude when we were previewing the season, Iowa's going to play in the Outback Bowl. It's not called the Outback Bowl anymore. There's always a spot at the Outback Bowl for Iowa, though. Iowa and Kentucky playing each other in the Outback Bowl. It happened last year when we said it was going to happen, and it's going to happen again this year. Iowa-Kentucky playing in the in the, uh, in the Outback Bowl, and Iowa is going to march their way 10 points at a time to an 8-4 and record, and it's absolutely ridiculous that they just had the most Iowa football game in the history of Iowa football, and I watched two and a half hours of it. It's the most lore college football game I have watched since... I watched Rutgers and Kansas play an entire football game against each other five years ago. From start to finish, the two worst programs in college football, I wanted to watch them play a shitty football game and just laugh the entire time. And the exact same shit was happening happening for me in that game on Saturday as I was watching Iowa and South Dakota State on and off for about two hours just punt the ball back and forth to each other. It was magical, it was hilarious, and I couldn't think of a better way to spend my Saturday morning on week one of college football.
Corn is indeed a good thing. And I can't wait for a 7-4 Iowa team to play Nebraska on a meaningless Black Friday game at 9 in the morning on the West Coast. My corn makes life looking up at this corn. He cuss, kick the corn, saying, son, it's way too cold. Corn up in the city, the corn man corn lanes. But where I'm corn from, corn is a good thing. Corn makes corn, corn makes corn, yeah. Corn makes my baby feel a little corn, yeah. Corn roads are bogging up my corn pile up in my truck. We corn our honeys down, we take them into corn. Start washing all our corn down the drain. Corn is a good thing. All right, one of my favorite activities every single year in college football is to go back in week one and see which programs paid for another school to absolutely dismantle their entire football team. Because this happens a few times every year where, uh, say, last year Montana State got, or I think it was the University of Montana. I don't want to disrespect uh, whoever it was, but the, uh, the Montana football program got paid a hundred yeah the montana football program got paid eight hundred thousand dollars to dismantle the university of washington's football program washington lost to montana and then they fired their coach like five weeks later and the coach was only at the job for like 14 games and got fired at the university of washington or northern arizona beating arizona last year with the hopes that arizona would go a perfect 0-12, although they won last year against a Cal Berkeley team that was playing without 22 players as a result of COVID. That was the one thing that kept Arizona from going winless last season. And uh, there weren't any true upsets of that nature this year, although we did get uh, Delaware beating Navy 14-7. Navy paid, uh, our, our tax dollars were paid so that Delaware could beat Navy in a football game and help fund their program for the next few years. Congratulations to Delaware. I know they had a, uh, a safety go to the draft a couple of years ago and they have Joe Flacco play at their school. That's all I know about Delaware. Congratulations to you, Delaware. Uh, we also had the magical game on Friday, which surprisingly I watched a large amount of, which was Old Dominion University projected to finish dead last in the Sun Belt East Division this year. Old Dominion beat Virginia Tech for the second time in a row. They played in 2019. Old Dominion beat Virginia Tech at Virginia Tech. This year they played at Old Dominion, and Old Dominion knocked off Virginia Tech. It's a precipitous fall for Virginia Tech, although for them, they're in the clear because they this was the first game for their new coach. And as I always say, when you hire a new coach... Always get a pass in the first year, even when it's Texas losing to Kansas, which is the greatest upset in the history of college football. Sometimes when it's your first year, you get a pass. Virginia Tech paid Old Dominion a bunch of money, I assume, in order to dismantle their program. And uh, TCU, in their first game with their new coach, went into Colorado and just beat the living shit out of Colorado. Obviously, that was a home-and-home thing, so they didn't get paid to dismantle their program, but sure felt like it was paying to dismantle your program when Colorado has fallen on such hard times. 
Uh, enough's been talked about with the Appalachian State North Carolina game. You can Google what happened there. It was pretty incredible. Uh, there was Nebraska almost choked on that one. Nebraska almost got to be in the camp of paying someone to dismantle their program. Uh, Middle Tennessee played their first Conference USA game against James Matt. I think James Madison and them are in the Sun Belt, but Middle Tennessee played James Madison in James Madison's first Division I football game. Uh, James, well, I guess their first FBS football game because James Madison is now in the Sun Belt. And uh, yeah, James Madison dismantled Middle Tennessee's entire football program in one swift move. Uh, not that Middle Tennessee had this great football program in the first place. It did indeed get dismantled, though, all in one fail swoop. Washington State was close. Washington State was so close to paying Iowa, uh, I, not Iowa, Idaho. Idaho got paid a million dollars to only lose by seven against Washington State, who, if you'll remember last year, Washington State's coach got fired for refusing to get a COVID vaccine, and Washington State still almost fucked around and won the Pac-12 North title. Uh, Washington State just promoted within their program, and uh, they almost paid Idaho a million dollars to dismantle their football program again. So uh, congratulations to them, and congratulations to all the teams that had their programs dismantled in week one. There are a couple of also notable ones to point out before we uh, wrap up this week's College Football Monday. Number one, Arizona beating San Diego State. I know they didn't pay them to do that, but that's one where San Diego State's got to look up and just start rethinking everything with that program. When Arizona's top receiver is going for 152 yards and three touchdowns, it is time to go back to the drawing board, San Diego State. You opened up a new stadium and you got exactly what you deserved, which was an ass-whooping by Arizona. And now they have to go play Utah in a few weeks. Utah, who just lost to Florida, yes, but probably should have beat Florida. But also Utah, who in November is going to play Arizona, where Blake Jude and I are going to watch them play against each other in Arizona. I'm sorry, in Utah. So San Diego State gets to play Arizona and get crushed. They get to play Utah and get crushed. And then Arizona and Utah can play a meaningless Pac-12 game in November that Blake and I will attend, hopefully paid for by local sponsors in the Salt Lake City area. So Utah, you shit the bed against Florida, although you probably should have won the game. It's just good play. This is one where Utah themselves didn't actually shit the bed. This was just really good job by Florida. Florida, you deserve your props for winning that game. And on the flip side of that, congratulations to the Arizona Wildcats for winning as many games this year as they did last year. And their only victory last year, as I will remind you, was beating Cal with 22 players on the field. Every week on Memes of the Weekend, we came back and talked about whether Arizona was still winless, and uh, we almost made it to the end of the season. They were 0-8 before they beat Cal, who didn't have 22 players due to COVID. So Arizona, congratulations, you get to win. And because of your lore, you might actually be bowl eligible by the time you play Utah this year, which... I guess makes the game more interesting that Blake, Jude, and I are going to go watch. And at the same time, it would have been funnier if Arizona was like 2-8 and eight and a sprawling football team. Maybe they'll still be 2-8. and eight. Maybe San Diego State will miss a bowl game for the first time since <clears throat> 2010. Maybe San Diego State will miss a bowl game this year. More likely, Arizona is going to be better than we thought. Hopefully Arizona starts losing some games so that it'll be funnier when we go to Utah and, and travel to Salt Lake City. And by we, I mean me and Blake Jude, who will again be live November 5th, Arizona versus Utah. Meaningless Pac-12 football. 
football game and uh, we will be there for that game and uh, we will get to watch uh, I guess what would it be I guess we'll watch three and seven Arizona take on eight and two Utah because Utah is now officially going to be in that 10 Utah is going to be a tier three program just like Utah has always been for years and years Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the meme, or I'm sorry, not the memes of the weekend, the Take It Easy podcast, College Football Monday, episode number one. Make sure to leave a five-star review and drop a follow on whatever podcasting platform that you may be listening. Take it easy, everybody. Enjoy your Labor Day. Go Georgia Tech. Hopefully they can cover a 37-point spread against Clemson on Monday.